0: There isn't a day that goes by where you don't hear some type of genocidal statement coming from either an Israeli leader or a member, an influential member of the public. And part of what the South African uh, petition is asking for is that they put into place measures to actually end that genocidal speech. But rather than ending it, they're, you know the Israelis are facilitating it and encouraging it.
1: Welcome to This is Palestine. My name is Leila Itashvini. Today, South Africa is accusing Israel of committing genocide in front of the International Court of Justice, or the ICJ. Hearings are set to begin on January 11th and 12th. To help us understand what this means and what we can expect as the case unfolds, we're joined by our usual host, Deanna Butu, who also happens to be a Palestinian lawyer with expertise on international human rights law. Welcome, Deanna. Thank you, Leila, and thanks for taking over the hosting function. Of course. Um, So first, for folks who are unfamiliar, can you explain just what the International Court of Justice is and how it differs from the International Criminal Court?
0: You'll probably hear lots of terms, ICJ, ICC, and there is a difference. There's a big difference between them. So the International Court of Justice is the highest international court. There's no place from which you can appeal. And it's the court that deals with disputes that are between states. So uh, in this case, between the state of South Africa and Israel. And the reason that it's different is because it deals with disputes that are between states that are civil, meaning that there's no real criminal liability involved. The difference between that and the International Criminal Court is that the International Criminal Court deals with individuals, and it deals with criminal liability, so criminal responsibility. In this case, because South Africa signed on to the Genocide Convention and Israel signed on to the Genocide Convention, in fact, it's, I think, one of the first conventions that they signed on to, The place that they're going to go to hear this dispute is the International Court of Justice. And the decisions that come out of the ICJ are, in fact, binding decisions. It requires that when a state goes to the ICJ, that they actually abide by the decisions that come out of the ICJ. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that.
1: Great. So, you know, I'm sure that there are several signatories, of course, to the Genocide Convention, Why is it South Africa that is the one to bring this case?
0: It's a really great question.
1: And I think it's mostly
0: to do with history. Look, there's something really positive or um, powerful, let's say, about a country that suffered under a regime of apartheid, bringing a claim against another apartheid regime. So... South Africa, which was formerly under a system of apartheid, bringing a claim against Israel, which is an apartheid regime. It's also very powerful because you have um, Israel, which one of the reasons that people and countries have continued to ignore the Nakba was because of the genocide that was perpetrated in the Second World War. And so the genocide of the Second World War has been pretty much an excuse for Israel to carry out the Nakba and to continue to deny Palestinian rights. So there's something very powerful about that. But beyond the powerful elements of this, it doesn't matter who brings the case. In other words, it doesn't need to be the state of Palestine that brings the case. And in fact, there would have been a whole bunch of jurisdictional issues about whether Palestine is a state, etc., all that matters is that South Africa has signed on and that Israel has signed on to the Genocide Convention. Those are the only things that that matter. What's also interesting is that we've seen a number of countries come forward and support South Africa's um, application and uh, and come out and also say that what Israel's doing is, is perpetrating genocide.
1: So we've seen too many war crimes to sort of list here um, that Israel has committed in Gaza in the past few months. But what is it specifically that South Africa is accusing Israel of?
0: South Africa is doing a couple things. So first they're saying Israel's carrying out a genocide. And they point to everything that Israel has done in the course of the nearly 100 days. Uh, everything from the killing of nearly 30,000 Palestinians. At the time that they filed the application, they listed 21,110, which, by the way, is 1% of Gaza's population. But genocide isn't just about the number of people who are killed. It's about whether there is both intent to carry out crimes as well as crimes that are being carried out that seek the destruction in whole or in part of a people based on their religion, based on their ethnicity, based on their nationality. And that's precisely what Israel's doing. So what they're alleging is that that it's not just the question of the 21,000 Palestinians who were killed up until that time, but all of the measures that Israel has imposed that are designed to um, prevent life. And it's everything from the injuring of tens of thousands of Palestinians the destruction of 355,000 homes, which is 60 percent of homes, it's the um, the fact that we have that we see 85 percent of the population Gaza displaced. The fact that we see that the northern part of Gaza has been completely eviscerated. The fact that we see that that Gaza City, the largest Palestinian city, no longer exists. And all of those things combined, coupled with the Israeli measures of cutting off food supplies, cutting off water supplies, cutting off fuel supplies, cutting off electricity supplies, imposing a communications blackout, all of these are elements that come together that are leading, that are going to lead, that already have led to mass deaths, but are going to lead to even further in the future And if you think about it, when you have nearly 100 days of of lack of water, of course there's gonna be dehydration and disease and we're already seeing that. Of course there's gonna be starvation and we're already seeing that. And so it's not just the direct killings, but it's all of these measures that are leading to the destruction of the Palestinian people in, in Gaza. And if you look even beyond that, Leila, and you think about what the future of of the Gaza Strip is, even if Israel were to stop today, it's important to think about what is left in Gaza. Let's say that you're a person who needs medical treatment. There's no way that you can get that medical treatment any longer in Gaza. The hospitals have been ruined. The system has, has collapsed. Um, if you want to be educated, there's no way that that can be done in Gaza today. You're going to have to go elsewhere. If, if you want to, to be able to live just a normal life, build a house, etc., that doesn't exist in Gaza any longer. And again, this isn't something that is, is an act of God. This is man-made. This is made by Israel. So what, what South Africa is alleging is that Israel's perpetrating genocide and, but what they're doing in the meantime is they're saying, we've presented to you, the court, enough evidence for you to be able to put into place provisional measures, to put into place measures to demand that Israel stop the killing, and to put into place measures to allow Palestinians to return, uh, to be able to get those humanitarian supplies, and to be able to try to rebuild their lives. That's what they're asking for.
1: So you mentioned, um, obviously, there's the proving that, that Israel has committed these various crimes that amount to genocide. And then there's also a really crucial piece to it, which is the intent piece that, from what I've read, is usually the more difficult one to prove, but that may that appears not to be the case here. Can you talk a little bit about the intent piece?
0: So if you look back to the cases that have been decided by the ICJ when it relates to genocide. Intent is always the most difficult part to prove. And, and so with any crime, <clears throat> there's always two elements, right? There's um, whether it's internationally or domestically, there's always two elements. One is doing the act and the other is the intent to do the act. And and in the case of genocide, it's usually very difficult to prove intent because, you don't have these egregious statements. You don't have people coming out and saying, hey, we're, this is what we're intending to do. In Israel's case, it's the exact opposite. And what's interesting is of this 84-page submission, nine full pages are devoted to genocidal statements by Israeli leaders. Again, this isn't the, the, the foot soldier. These are Israeli leaders. Everything from the Israeli president who said that there are no innocents in Gaza, to the Israeli prime minister who invoked biblical verses that refer to genocide, to the prime minister who said that this is um, the battle of children of light and children of darkness, uh, to, again, statements by the prime minister where he said that Gaza is going to be smaller in size and smaller in population, fewer in population. We then also have statements by the Israeli Minister of Finance, by the Israeli Minister of National Security, this is, uh, Smoltrich and Benigvier, to the Israeli Minister of Heritage, who said that they should be wiped off the map, and uh, to another minister who said that Israeli, Israel should use a nuclear weapon. So statement after statement after statement that Israeli um, ministers... On all levels, and of course, not to forget the Minister of Defense who referred to Palestinians as human animals and who took the decision to cut off water, electricity, fuel, and food supplies and who has been responsible for preventing in medical supplies and other supplies from getting into to Gaza. So usually the intent is difficult to prove, but here, because Israel has felt so emboldened, it's laid it out and it continues to lay it out each and every day, there isn't a day that goes by where you don't hear some type of genocidal statement coming from either an Israeli leader or a member, an influential member of the public. And part of what the South African um, uh, petition is asking for is that they put into place measures to actually end that genocidal speech. But rather than ending it, they're, you know the Israelis are facilitating it and encouraging it.
1: So given uh, what you've said about both pieces, the, the acts themselves and then the intent, um, how strong in your expert opinion is South Africa's case?
0: I think it's very strong. And I think it is not only um, putting Israel on trial, but this is really a test for the international legal system as we know it. When when you think about international systems, or if you think of any legal system around the world, systems around the world or countries around the world are really only as good as how it is that they protect the most vulnerable within their society. That for me is a measure of how good a government is or how good a system is. How is it that they treat the most vulnerable elements of society? In the international legal system, it's, it's the same. And, and the reason I'm saying that this is a test for the international legal system as a system uh, as a whole is here we're not talking about a state versus another state. Yes, the petition is South Africa versus Israel, but the people who are in the middle, who are the ones who are affected are Palestinians. We're stateless, refugees, it's a child population. These are refugees who've been made refugees by Israel. And, and so if the international system can't protect stateless, refugees, child population, then it, it shows you just how wrong the international legal system is. And so I actually think this case is a very strong one. But it's not just against Israel. It's really it's putting a spotlight on the international system as a system as we know it. And, and that's why you've seen um, a number of countries come forward say, stating that that what they see, that they're very uncomfortable with what it is that Israel's doing. Now, of course, on a political level, they're unwilling to call out Israel. But yet since we've seen this petition, we've heard a number of countries say maybe Israel should be scaling back. And, and so I actually think that this um, petition is quite strong. Remember, this is just a provisional request. So all that all they have to do is show that there is enough evidence there that the genocide convention is um, being violated. They don't have to prove genocide and, and, and therefore the request for provisional me- measures. And so I, I actually think this is a very strong. I think it's a very, very, very strong case.
1: You've talked basically about how we have two parts here. We have um, the provisional measures that South Africa is asking for, and then uh, the broader case on the merits, essentially. Um, Can you talk about timelines for for both of those?
0: It's hard to say. So some uh, provisional measures, we've gotten decisions within eight days. Sometimes I think it's 40 days, um, but it tends to be on a quick basis. On the larger case, it can take years. It can take years. And I suspect that what Israel is going to try to do is to try to evade both parts. I fully expect that Israel will come on Friday and say that they've already scaled back that there's no need to have provisional measures, that um, because they have scaled back, it's unnecessary for the court to issue any sort of provisional decision. I think they're also going to try to evade the bigger case of genocide um, by hiding behind self-defense. This has been the statement that they've used from day one, And they'll try to somehow um, evade it. How? They'll try to get pressure to be put on South Africa or on other countries by the United States or by other countries um, to make sure that there is no push forward. This has been the way that Israel has behaved in the past. And it's going to be, once again, a real test of the international system if uh, Israel is allowed to get away with literal murder, with, with genocide.
1: Um, so you spoke a bit before you mentioned that the ICJ's rulings are binding on Israel as a signatory of the Genocide Convention. Um, but what are the enforcement mechanisms that are available to the ICJ?
0: This is where it's the weakest. So the international system as a system is deals with voluntary enforcement. There is no overall like police force. And, uh, and, and so although it states in the ICJ that anybody who goes to the ICJ agrees to be bound by its decisions, um, if Israel doesn't abide, let's assume that there is a positive outcome. If Israel does not abide, then the member states can go to the UN Security Council and try to get the decision enforced there what's the problem, is that once again, we're bound by politics. And if uh, anybody who's listening knows anything about the UN Security Council, the vast majority of time that the U- that the United States has used its veto in the Security Council, it has been for Israel's benefit. Um, in fact, it's really only ever used the veto, um, both Israel and Russia. That's it. So, um, so... The, the fear, of course, is that, that Israel refuses to abide. It then gets taken to the UN Security Council and the United States tries to use its veto. Those are the possibilities, but I don't think that's so likely for a few reasons. One is, can you imagine there's a ruling that Israel is committing genocide and it decides that it doesn't want to abide by that ruling? Imagine the optics of it, <clears throat> a country that has as its slogan, never again, perpetrating genocide, um, throwing away the Genocide Convention. It says a lot. It really says a lot. Second is, while the U.S. could, in theory, use its veto, again, what does it say when you get the United States to veto um a, a, a demand by the UN Security Council that Israel stop perpetrating genocide. But even beyond that, it, it doesn't stop there. Enforcement doesn't stop there. There are other mechanisms as well. You know, in the United States itself, there is domestic legislation that says that um, that people who perpetrate war crimes can be, can be prosecuted criminally for their war, war crimes there is legislation that deals with weapons that goes to um, that go to countries around the world and imagine that we now have the highest international court ruling that there that Israel's perpetrating genocide on what basis can further arms be exported to Israel but even beyond that it even if if that fails it it strengthens the movement that has been in place since the first ICJ decision, which I was part of back in, in 2004 um, regarding the wall. One year after that ruling came out was when the BDS movement, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions movement, was developed. Uh, it was de- It was enhanced, let's say, because there had been an earlier version of it. And it has since grown. So on any level, if you think about it, even if Israel tries to avoid um, or, or says that it's not gonna, that it's going to continue, there are a number of avenues for redress. One is the UN Security Council. And if that fails, there are domestic laws, not just in the US, but elsewhere. But there's also, a, a, it's going to strengthen the BDS movement And that's the part that I think Israel is very worried about, is that in as much as they have been viewing and thinking that world public opinion is on their side, I think they're now beginning to realize that it's actually not. And if there is a decision by the ICJ, it's going to change public opinion, just in the way that the first advisory, just in the first way, the first decision of the ICJ uh, back in 2004, again, changed public opinion uh, when it came to the wall.
1: So, you know, the implications, if and when we get to that point, sound immense. Um, but before we do, uh, just sort of as this case plays out in the near future, how do you imagine the U.S. acting, essentially?
0: I think that the U.S. is going to continue to act in the way that it's been acting uh, since day one. Um, this is—it's become increasingly clear that this isn't just Israel attacking Palestinians; it's Israel and the U.S. attacking Palestinians. And I say this with the full weight and knowledge of what it is that the U.S. is doing. When you when you look at what um, what the U.S. government has done. The U.S. government has not only given weapons to Israel, they've, in addition to sending an aircraft carrier ship, a couple of them, over, they've sent money to Israel. They have sent uh, personnel. They've sent uh, uh, members of the army to come as well. But the biggest thing that they've done is they've given Israel diplomatic cover in the form of bullying other countries to support Israel in the early days, to then uh, vetoing two UN Security Council resolutions, to then pushing for the watering down of a Security Council resolution, which they then abstained from. So everything that the Biden administration has done has at least shown me that they're not at all interested in Israel stopping uh, this genocide, but they're interested in perpetuating it, and this is why we've heard statements like them saying that um, that the 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 case is meritless when it is it's got a lot of merit. This is why we've heard them dismiss any claims by Palestinians and others saying that Israel is using uh, too much force. They've instead ignored it, and and so this is very much. Um, an, an Israel slash American attack on the Gaza Strip. What that means in the long term, when it comes to this, uh, when it comes to this petition, is it will really shine a spotlight on the U.S. Um, and the U.S.'s role. If, in the aftermath of this, the U.S. continues to behave as it's behaved all of this time,
1: for people around the world that are sort of tuning in and watching um, this case play out, what, uh, what is the role of sort of public pressure when it comes to something like the International Court of Justice?
0: I think it's twofold. I think that without public pressure, I don't think that South Africa would have put forward the case. I think that a lot of the reason that South Africa put forward the case was was because they started to see the the impact um, of this global protest movement. They saw they were seeing the same images that you and I and others are seeing, and they were moved to they were moved to act. Look, I think it's also important to understand there's a long history of. Palestinian South African solidarity, um, long history of Palestinian anti-apartheid solidarity. It's a very, very, very long history. And uh, I think that that South Africa was both moved by, by the outpouring of public opinion, but it's the other way around. I think that this, the outcome of this can also impact public opinion. You know, you don't need to have a legal decision or, and you certainly don't need to be a lawyer, to look around and see that what Israel's doing is wrong. We know it. We know it viscerally. You don't need a legal opinion. You don't need to be a lawyer. I mean, you can, it, it, you don't need to, you can look around and see the images and say, wow, it's wrong to be bombing refugee camps. It's wrong that there are 7,000 people still trapped under the rubble that can't get out of the rubble because they don't have the equipment to pull them out of the rubble. Um, it's wrong that kids are being bombed. It's wrong that that Israel has dropped the equivalent of 6,000 bombs a week uh, for the past 14 weeks. I mean, again, you don't need a, a decision to be telling you that this is wrong. But that said, people, people look to these types of hooks. Uh, they look to a legal hook they, they look to have something in hand so that they can say, here, this is yet another tool. And that's what this is going to be. It's going to be yet another tool. And so it goes both ways. Public opinion is what has fueled South Africa. And an, a, a, an outcome is what's also going to fuel public opinion.
1: So in addition to the 15 judges who sit on the ICJ, the court is allowing both Israel and South Africa to bring on their own ad hoc judges. Um, And on the South African side, we have Judge Degang Mosaniki, a South African judge and former anti-apartheid activist who was a friend of Nelson Mandela's. Um, Can you talk about who uh, the Israelis are bringing on as their ad hoc judge?
0: Um, so the Israelis chose a man named uh, Aaron Barak, Aaron Barak, um, who was a former Israeli Supreme Court judge, and it's th- this is important because th- Barak was uh, not only an Israeli Supreme Court judge, but he's the person that many. Uh, in the West have lauded and applauded and said that he's such a liberal judge. Um, and the reason that they've referred to him as a liberal judge is because he, in, in Israeli terms, has been a judge who, uh, as they, they, many would like you to believe, has kind of binded, bound the hands of the government. But in reality, that's not true. Um, and the reason that the Israelis chose Barak is because he is a judge who is very well respected in the West, but at the same time, he's been a judge who has wreaked havoc on the lives of Palestinians. In fact, he, in the words of one Palestinian uh, scholar, Nimr Sultani, has said that he's the one who most legitimized Israel's occupation um, with and gave it a legal... He gave it legal legitimacy. So the question is how? Uh, let me step back for a second and say inside Israel, when he was appointed, there was a bit of a stir because he's been opposed to all of these judicial reforms and judicial changes that the Israeli right wing is trying to push forward. But when it comes to Palestinians, he's, he's, been, he's been a dream. For any each and every Israeli government. And let me be clear about some of the things that he did. This is a man who has legitimate who accepted the use of torture against Palestinians. This is a man who said that it is okay to demolish Palestinian homes as punishment. This is a man who said that it's okay to have a law in which uh, Palestinians who are who hold Israeli citizenship um, can't pass on that citizenship to a spouse who who's from the West Bank or from the Gaza Strip, for quote unquote security reasons, which we really know are demographic reasons. Which um, since legislators have claimed very clearly that this is for demographic reasons, this is a, a judge who who said that it was okay for Israel to steal Palestinian land. This is a judge who even went so far as to say that the decision of the International Court of Justice when it came to the wall could be ignored. And instead that it's, um, it's up to Israeli courts to determine the root of the wall. It's not up to the International Court. So on every level, if you look at his history, this is a judge who has been lauded in the West but he should have been condemned because of all of the rulings that he's taken that have been so pro-occupation, so pro-settlement, so pro-government, so pro-ethnic cleansing, and likely now so pro-genocide. He came out in the early days of Israel's attack on the Gaza Strip and said that, uh, that what Israel was doing is fine, that there was no violation of international law, even though it was clear that they, that they were So this is the person who the Israelis have appointed as being their judge. And I think that they appointed him because because he's so well-respected in outside circles. But those people who respect him on the outside have not examined his history when it comes to Palestinians and how it is that he's ruled and uh, in favor of the occupation time and again, and how he's wreaked havoc on the lives of Palestinians. Thank you for listening to This is Palestine, a podcast brought to you by the Institute for Middle East Understanding. The IMEU is a nonprofit focused on giving you access to untold stories, facts, and expert sources on all things Palestine. For more information, please visit our website at www.imeu.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the IMEU. Please don't forget to subscribe. I'm Deanna Butu. Thanks for listening.